Good morning, Bay Hills. Grab the study guide that's in your program. As you're doing that, I want to show you a picture of a building in New York. It's actually in Manhattan. This is a, uh, the, a picture of the Manhattan Chase Building uh, and the heart of Manhattan. It was, uh, began construction in 1957, and quite, very soon after they began to, to, to build this 66-story skyscraper, the builders discovered a significant issue and a problem they had to deal with. Uh, the foundation that they had laid was not on rock. What they discovered, and I guess this would make sense on an island as is Manhattan, it wasn't on rock. The foundation was actually being built on quicksand. I know. Even if you're not a, not a, a, a contractor, you know that's a little bit of a problem. And so they decided, you know, can we take to dismantle the, the, the framing that we've already put up? Can we sure up the pilings? They were trying to come up with all these solutions to what do we do? They brought in geologists. Geologists said, if you don't do anything, if you don't fix it, guaranteed at some point in time it will begin to sink, it will begin to lean, and eventually it will fall over and, and damage and or destroy some of the other uh, buildings around it. So you're going to have to do something about it because then you're going to be liable. And so they, they came up with all these solutions. None of them seemed to be financially feasible or smart to do. And, and then someone came up with an idea. It was actually a chemist. And, and they decided to take these huge, these huge, basically huge straws, sink them deep into the quicksand, and they p- pumped in a solution of sodium silicate and cal- calcium chloride. If you're in, into chemistry, you might know what that does. But literally, in, in one week, that quicksand that otherwise would have taken one million years, geologists say, one million years to solidify, in one week, it was turned into hard sandstone that was watertight and nothing else had to be changed. Now, whether you're a contractor building a home or a skyscraper, we all instinctively know that the foundation is rather important. Likewise, the same is true for us as followers of Jesus Christ. Our foundation is critical, okay? Now, last week we saw that the Apostle Paul speaks to our foundation in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and here's what he says. Listen, when you boil it down, Christianity, essentially, when it comes to that foundation, must have three concepts or principles. You absolutely must have faith, hope, and love. You've got to have it. Now, we talk a lot about the last one, love. We sing songs about it. We go to Bible studies and read books on it. We do the same with faith. This series is about the idea that we don't really talk much about hope. We really don't. And yet, if it's one of the key components of our foundation, we've got to figure out what's it about and how do we get, how do we raise our hope count? That's what we've been talking about. Now, our passage this morning, I told you I would eventually get to the Christmas story, and today we're going to look at part of the Christmas story that was spoken of as a prophecy regarding the coming Christ, the coming Savior. And it's in the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 6. You will recognize this verse. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to tell you why we're going to talk about it this morning. Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on its, his soldiers. Now, the very next verse after this and, and thereafter, this idea of government keeps getting mentioned. I, I want to just draw your attention to it because the Jews at the time and even the disciples, they were all confused with Jesus because they thought, looking at this prophecy, he wasn't not only going to be a spiritual savior, but also a political savior. He was going to throw out the, 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 the Romans and he was going to be in charge of the government, Right? It's fair. They, they didn't understand. No one understood that there was going to be a, a first coming and a second coming. 
But don't make any mistake about it. That prophecy will be fulfilled someday, and he really will be in charge of all the governments of the world. I just want to point it out to you because it, it added to some of the confusion that they had, the disciples and the Jews at the time. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, his go- the government will be on his shoulders. And now four key ideas of who Jesus will be and can be for you. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. The historical context of Isaiah chapter 8 and chapter 9 is important because Israel, God's people at the time, find themselves in a very difficult, dark situation. They are facing the probability that their arch enemies, the Assyrians, are going to invade, destroy their capital city, and annihilate their people. That's what they're facing. It's on the news. Everybody's talking about it. That's what's coming. And in Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet clears his throat and gets everyone's attention. Focus in, folks. Hey, right here. I want you to know there is light at the, at the end of the tunnel. There is hope for God's people. Why? Because someone special is coming. Someone special is going to be born. A savior, Messiah, is going to be born. And, and he's going to be all these things for you. Now, this series is about helping us increase our hope count, okay? And and, and I've told you, in this series, I'm going to talk to you about five components or characteristics. Last week, we talked about two. Today, we're going to talk about number three. Let me show you where we've been and where we're going. Let's put it on the screen. So if you want to raise your hope count, number one, you got to refocus your future. We talked about putting on a new pair of glasses. We talked about this idea that, listen, you cannot spend your time looking at the rear view mirror of life, which most of us do. It's occasionally helpful to glance in the rearview mirror at your past, at your successes and your failures, and learn from them. But most of us need to spend more time looking through the windshield of life. We need to understand that God's future for us is good. Focus on that. Don't be consumed by your past. Second of all, we talked about if you want to increase your hope, you need to recharge your batteries. Last week, application uh, was some of you need to go home and take a nap. I could see some of you need to still apply that because you rolled in this morning looking a little tired, right? And it's the idea that you cannot be a hope-filled person if you're tired. And so we just talked about some general things about, you know, eliminating things that drain you and increasing things that fuel you. Now, but if you're honest, point number one and point number two, if I'm not referring to Scripture, I did, but if you're not, I could just be your life coach. But I'm not your life coach. I'm your pastor. And so that's why... Principle number three that we're going to talk about this morning is so incredibly important. Yes, refocus on your future. Yes, recharge your batteries, but also remember who it is that you follow. It is fascinating to me. When when I studied scripture this week and I looked at that word, how often God finds it necessary to say to us, his people, remember. Remember who I am. Remember what I've done for you in the past. Remember what I'm doing for you in the present. Remember what I've promised you in the future. Remember my character. Remember my attributes. That phrase comes up over and over again. And it's not because we literally intellectually forget. We practically live our lives like we've forgotten. Does that make sense? And so today, the goal of increasing our hope count is very simply, guys, I want you to to remember, God says to us, who I am my benefit to you presently and in the future. 
And for that, we're, we're going to rest and we're going to focus on those four phrases in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. What do they mean? Why do they get mentioned at Christmas time? And how are they helpful to you? So if you grab your study guide, I think it's going to be helpful. The first thing it says is that he's a wonderful counselor. Now, that word counselor, you just very simply, you have to understand it's used in very different ways. And, and, and all of them can relate to, to who Jesus is to you. Sometimes the word counselor refers to a lawyer. If you, if you watch TV shows or cop shows or law and order, it, sometimes the judge will say, counselor, what, what, you know, what do you have to say for your, your client or whatever it is, right? And, and, and you know, I, I Googled this week some of, the, some of the things that lawyers have done for their clients over the years. It's not hard to find. For example, this one, a burglar fell through a skylight while robbing a school. His lawyer charged the school with negligence and went, won $260,000 in damage. Can you believe that? Here's another one. A Massachusetts man stole a car from a car lot. Someone selling cars, right? Stole the car while he was driving the stolen car. He had an accident and died. The estate lawyer for the family sued the car dealership for, quote, letting him steal the car, and they won. Yep. Listen to this next one. A lady claimed to have lost her psychic powers during a CAT scan at the hospital. Her lawyer sued the hospital, and she was awarded $1 million. And I thought, if she had psychic powers, why couldn't she predict that she was going to lose her psychic powers? But I digress. Now, we're all mumbling and grumbling. Oh, my goodness, I can't believe these lawyers. And time out. Do you realize how much you have gotten away with? Sounds like the Holy Spirit's working right over here on one. Do you realize when you show up in the courtroom of heaven, you will need a counselor, lawyer standing right beside you because of all your garbage in the past? And you won't need a lawyer that uses fancy lawyer tricks to get you out of it. No, you will need a lawyer that stands before the judge of the universe and gets you out of what you did because of what he did. It's critically important that you understand his role as your lawyer, your counselor lawyer. He also, and that word is used, as a therapist. You know, it seems like 30 years ago, 40 years ago, the only people that dared admit that they went to a therapist were really messed up, right? I think we have a more healthy approach today. We, we understand that counselors and therapists can be very helpful to us. And, and, and we're all somewhat messed up, and sitting down with a counselor can help us process our pain, and they can help us understand our thoughts, and they can help us identify feelings that maybe we don't understand, and how our parents affected us, and what, and all these things, and how to cope, and how to heal. Sitting down with a counselor is incredibly helpful, very helpful. No one better to do it than Jesus. No one better at it than Jesus. And finally, the word counselor sometimes is used just as an advisor. You have heads of states and presidents that are surrounded by dozens of advisors to, 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 to give them the, the, the smartest advice they can possibly get in order to make decisions. And, and once again, Scripture tells us that there's no one better at it than Jesus. Now, Isaiah identifies Jesus as a, a counselor, but he's not just any old counselor that's a lawyer, therapist, and advisor. He's, he's really good at it. He, he uses, he's wonderful at it. And what, what I want to reflect with you on for a moment is why. Why is he extraordinary? Two or three things that I want to draw your attention to is, number one is that he's qualified. 
He's qualified. You guys show up today, and, and, and most of you on a weekly basis, because you have a sense that I am fairly qualified and more or less have a sense of what's going on in this book, so you're willing to listen to what I teach. That's why you show up. But if I stood up here, and instead of giving you biblical advice, if I stood up here and gave you, I don't know, computer advice, (laughs) medical advice, how to fix your car advice, some of you would turn on me quickly. I know you. Why would you turn on me? Because I'm not qualified. I don't have a clue how to fix your car. Do not come to me if you have problems with your car. Do you realize that Jesus, that God is qualified and at the top of the list in every category? That's what makes him extraordinary. He's also always available. If you have a a bum shoulder and you go try and find the best surgeon in the Bay Area to operate on shoulders, there's a good chance not only will they not be able to operate on you this week or this month, you'll be lucky if you'll have them operate on your shoulder middle of next year. Why? Because when you're really, really, really good at something, you're booked. You're booked. Do you realize the privilege it is to know that now, this afternoon, you can show up into the throne room of heaven and access Jesus? He is available to you all the time. Matthew twenty-eight twenty. Finally, third is that he understands us. He doesn't give you cookie-cutter advice. It is tailor-made to you. And finally, the most important, why is he an extraordinary counselor? Because whether he's serving as your lawyer or as your advisor or as your therapist, whatever role he's playing for you and you need from him, he guarantees you success. Guaranteed. I've heard of this couple who went to see a counselor. Their marriage uh, was, was kind of on the rocks a little bit. And so they sit, they sit in the counselor's office and the, the, the counselor turns to the husband and says, can you tell me what's wrong? Explain to me the problem. And, and the husband, you know, sometimes we can be a little thick. He's like, I, I don't know what's wrong. I thought everything was great. And I'm here because she asked me to be here. So the counselor right in a way knows, okay, I can see there's issues there. And then he turns to the wife and he says, could you tell me what do, what do you think is wrong in the marriage? And right away her eyes tear up. And she, she says, you know, he, he, doesn't even, he doesn't hold my hand anymore. There's no affection. We don't have any romance anymore. And I just... You know, and, and the therapist listens throughout all this. And then he says to the couple, he says, you know, um, I, I have um, a very simple treatment that I want to show you. And he leans into the wife. He gives her an embrace and he kisses her passionately on the lips. <laughs> kisses over. He turns to the husband. and He says, that is what she needs at least twice a week. And the husband's like, well. I guess I can bring her in on Tuesdays and Thursdays. (laughs) You know what's wrong about that? That's what some of you will remember. That's the only thing from this morning. You'll be telling your coworkers tomorrow. (laughs) Okay, so he's a great counselor. Now what? Let me show you now what. Let's put it on the screens. Three things. Number one is make an appointment. As is the case with some of these series, I, I can't give you all the verses and But in your study guide, I've given you the references, and Psalm chapter 5, verse 3 tells us how to make an appointment. You want to know how? Now, you guys did a really good job because you showed up for your your Sunday 10 a.m. appointment with, with the counselor. 
And hopefully, and my goal, we pray for it every Sunday, that you don't really hear David's words, but you hear God's words. And he uses me to, to talk to you. That's the goal. I try to get out of the way. But how about your Monday morning appointment? Or your Tuesday afternoon appointment? Or your Wednesday at lunch appointment? Because you see, one appointment a week isn't going to be enough. Make an appointment. Pick this book up. The second thing is listen carefully to what he has for you. Scripture tells us that um, Jesus says that my followers, they, they can hear my voice. They can identify it. You know, when, when, they are, when they are especially reading Scripture, they can especially hear me speaking to them and identifying specific things I want, I want you to work on. But the, finally, the most important is you need to implement quickly. You know, if a doctor gives you a prescription and you fill the prescription but you don't take the pills, don't expect to feel better. If your mechanic says you need, you need some new spark plugs, you need to ch- change, a, change your oil and you need a new transmission, but you don't do it, don't expect your car to run smoother. Six weeks ago when I was with my physical therapist and trying to figure out with my leg and he gives me three pages of exercises and sheets and says, if you want to get back up on your feet quickly, do these exercises. It's going to hurt a little bit, but you need to do them. But if I just leave the piece of paper on the kitchen counter and don't do the exercises, I shouldn't expect my leg to feel better quickly. And likewise, it's great that some of you take notes. I see some of you taking notes. Some of you don't take notes and that's fine because I know how it is. I'm giving you 15 suggestions. I hope you go away with one that you want to apply. The question is not whether you take notes. The question is not whether you enjoy the sermon. The question is when you walk out that door, do you actually apply what you've heard? That's the issue. Because he can be a wonderful counselor to you, but, but if we don't implement what he asks us to do, don't expect your marriage or your finances or your stress or whatever it is that God is speaking to you to, to improve. Does that make sense? And by doing so, watch, your hope count is going to increase. I guarantee it. Second thing is he is a mighty God to us. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, the apostle Paul says this about Jesus. In Jesus Christ, all the fullness of deity, that's a fancy word that means God, in Jesus, the fullness of deity lives. What, what Paul is trying to say is that Jesus isn't junior God. Jesus isn't almost what God the Father has. No, he is fully God. But then he adds a phrase that is what we celebrate at Christmas that adds some complexity to understanding Christ. The fullness of, of, of deity dwells in Christ in bodily form. And it's this doctrine that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And you could sort of understand it, but not understand it completely. That's the mysteries of God, right? Now, I don't have the time to go in a tangent, but if you go to like our Harvard doctrine class, we talk about why it's absolutely significant that Jesus was fully man and fully God for you to get the salvation that, that we desperately need and want. He had to be both. And, and that's for a topic for a different day. Now, in the prophecy, the prophet emphasizes his godness, his deity. And, and furthermore, he doesn't say he's an omniscient God. He knows everything. He doesn't emphasize that. He doesn't talk about an omnipresent God. God is everywhere. He doesn't talk about a wise God or a loving God. He doesn't talk about any of that. He emphasizes his might. He emphasizes his power. So let's talk about that. And if understanding how it implements into your life, you'll see your hope count go up. Three things, how he works in your life. God's power is at work in you. 
Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine according to his power, to God's power, here it comes, that is at work within you. That is a staggering thought. That the power that created the universe can be flowing through your body, can be flowing through your life. Second thing is that God's power is at work for you. Sort of the same, but different. So for all of us who walked in here with problems and issues and questions, Isaiah 40, 29, 31 speaks to us. He's referring to God, gives strength to the weary. Some of us walked in, you're tired, right? And increases the power of the weak. So he's available not only to change me, he's also available to help me because of his power. But it's not all about you. You see, his power also puts you in a position that he can use you. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the last verse on that screen. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. This is a verse that speaks of the the pivot point between the Old Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was given for a special task, and then the Holy Spirit was taken away. The Holy Spirit was given for a special task and taken away. But from the moment Jesus Christ shows up, a new covenant and a new way comes around. And the Holy Spirit, once you embrace Christ as Savior, is given to you permanently. That's what it says in Scripture. And it's not just for your benefit. This verse gives it, it's for other people's benefit. He wants you to walk out of here and be his witnesses. The idea is, though, that the power of God is accessible to you. March 18, 1937, this happened. Let's put it on the screen. A small town of Itasca and East Texas um, had a natural gas leak in their building. There was an explosion that then resulted in a fire. That disaster is still the worst school disaster in our history as a country. That day, 200 and 63 children died, not counting the teachers and school officials that were also in that building. It was an absolutely devastating event for this small town who literally, in a couple minutes, lost an entire generation of kids. It took them a while to recover as a town. Initially, they didn't rebuild the school. You want to know why? There were no kids to go to school. But eventually, as new families moved in or families that had lost a kid had kids again, they, they built a brand new school. And I have a picture of the school for you. It doesn't look, at our standards, that great. But in the 1940s, um, it was very good, and in particular, in one area. It had a state-of-the-art, the best you can find, sprinkler system on the planet. That community decided... You know what? Some of our kids died because they couldn't get out and the fire got them. Never again. And they installed the best sprinkler system they could find. When, when school, I'm sorry, when, when dignitaries and, and, and government officials would walk through or parents would walk through at the beginning of the year and given a tour of the school by honor students, the honor students would take them around everything and eventually they would always point to the sprinklers. Of course, in our day, it's code. You need that. But those days, it wasn't. And they would identify this state-of-the-art sprinkler system so that the disaster that occurred would never happen again. Seven years later, 
they wanted to add a wing to the back of the school. More and more students were now enrolling, and they needed more classrooms. And so they began the process of getting a contractor that added a wing, and at one point in time, they needed to now tie in the sprinkler system from the existing school to the, to the new sprinkler system in the new wing. And it was at that point that they identified and they found that this state-of-the-art sprinkler system had never been connected to the water. Question, have you accessed God's power source? Because you see, we ooh and awe at the story I just say, but I know a lot of Christians that have God's power available to them and they never connect. They don't connect. You go, well, how do I do that? It's very simple. There's two steps. Let me show you. Commitment and obedience. It's not enough just to feel good about Jesus. It's not enough just to come to church. It's not enough just to be a good person. At some point in time, you have to commit. Just like you committed to sit on that chair because you trusted it, at some point, God asked the same thing you were to do with his son, Jesus. I'm not just going to talk about it. I'm committing my life to Christ. And then second of all, do what he tells you to do. That is what is required to access the power in your life. Anything short of that, well, you've not accessed the source yet. Here's what we've learned so far. Let's put it on the screen. So, so God is my wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. He's also an everlasting father. Now, I do want to point some out, something out to you because it's interesting what some theologians have said about this term father. It is used throughout scripture. It is used in the New Testament. In this case, it's used as an attribute quality of what Jesus can even be for you. But one of the things that theologians says is that every one of us, we have to be careful because what we do is sometimes, without even meaning to, we superimpose upon our Heavenly Father our perspective and feelings and thoughts on our earthly Father. Does that make sense? Because it's Father, Father, right? They sort of should be the same. It, whether, regardless of what kind of dad you have, that's going to be problematic. So, for example, my earthly Father. Let me show you some pictures of my earthly Father, right? The big picture, that's when we were in Mallorca, in the, off the coast of Spain. That's where I grew up. Um, and the other one, what was it? You know, we did that this past couple years ago, Throwback Thursday or whatever, a picture of the old and new. By the way, uh, from my high school students, I see some of you out there. The picture on the top right, okay? I'm sitting on my lap, and I'm playing with my dad's, what they call it is typewriter. <laughs> typewriter is what they call them. So it's like a laptop, but you put the paper in the thing, right? There was no spell check in it. How many of you remember writing term papers on a typewriter? Can I see your head? See, everyone who raised their hand, their arm hurts, their back hurts, their eyes aren't working, right? And so, so now, you know what? I didn't realize I had a great dad until I moved out of the house. I really didn't. I thought this is the, I have a really good dad, right? Not perfect, but he was a, man, I, I was so privileged to grow up with a great dad and a great mom. Some of you know them, right? But even I have to take the Etch-A-Sketch and shake it. You know why? Because as good as my earthly father was, he doesn't come close to what my heavenly father is like. And vice versa, for those of us who grew up with not so good of a dad, right? And some of us have that. You too have to Etch-A-Sketch your perception of what dad is, what father is, and understand 
that your heavenly everlasting father is vastly different. Does that make sense? A couple things you need to know about your heavenly father. Let me show you. Number one is that he's compassionate and caring. Psalm 103, verse 13, says literally that. He is compassionate towards his kids. I don't know why I thought about this, but do you remember the Pixar movie and Nemo? The little cute fish, and he's swimming around. And it was apparently his dad, they were a single family because mom's not there. I don't know what happened to mom, but his dad is best friend. His dad takes care of him. His dad protects him. And one day, Nemo kind of you know, doesn't listen to his dad's advice, and he swims a little bit too far out past the reef, and he gets plucked up by a diver, and he ends up in a fishbowl in a dentist's office. Remember the story? And what does dad do? Dad goes through this incredible adventure and sacrifice to get his son back. That's what your everlasting heavenly father's like. We'll do near anything to help and rescue you because he cares for you. He's also close and he's never too busy. Psalm 145, verse 18, the Lord is near to all, to everyone who calls on him. And the last is that he's consistently righteous and holy. So 1 John 1, 5, again, I want to encourage you to look up, take your notes home with you and look up some of these references, says that God is light, which means he's pure, he's clean. And then it adds, there is no darkness in him at all, which is this idea that there's no impurity in him. There's no evil in him. He he never has, quote, a bad day. There's a story told about a frontier preacher back in the old Western days, right? This frontier preacher, and one day his two boys brought a stray dog home, and they begged dad, can we keep the dog? Can we keep the dog? It was a a really nice, friendly, all-black dog with three distinct white, thick hairs on its tail. And the dog was like, well, if you guys take care of the dog, then I, I guess we can keep it. So they kept the dog, and they loving on the dog. A week later, uh, the, 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 the frontier preacher saw in the newspaper an ad that someone had placed basically saying, have you seen my dog? It's a black dog with three distinct white hairs on its tail. The person who placed the ad in that newspaper, because it was a smallish kind of town, also heard that the, that the preacher in town had found a dog. And he thought, well, I'm going to go check it out. Maybe that's my dog. And he went to the preacher's house and, and the black dog came running up to, 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 the, to the guy and, and jumped on him. And clearly he recognized this guy. At, what point, at which point the preacher said to him, by the way, I, know, I noticed your newspaper ad said that it was a black dog with three distinct white hairs on its tail. Yep. Well, I don't see the white hairs. And the owner looked and The three distinct white hairs were not on the tail because when the pastor had seen the newspaper, he'd gone to his boys, he'd had the boys hold the dog, and very quickly he'd clipped the white hairs off. And so the rightful owner left that day not taking his dog with him because of what the dad had done. That frontier preacher, that pastor, once wrote these words about that event. I kept the dog that day, but I also lost my boys. The name, names of his two boys were Frank and Jesse James. If you don't recognize those names, they were the two, two of the greatest villains in the Wild West. It's a good reminder that for us as earthly parents that Sometimes forget that our kids 
don't do what we say. They do what we do. They follow our example. But again, we're not focusing on earthly parents now. We're focusing on a heavenly father. I, I just, I guess, want to ask rhetorically to you, isn't it incredibly rewarding that we have a heavenly father that is consistently righteous and always holy? I mean, think about that and rest in that. And as you do that, your hope count goes up. It has to. The last thing we're going to talk about, so we, we're, we've talked about this idea that, that he's a counselor to us, that he's a mighty God, that he's an everlasting father. And the last thing it says is that he, will, he gives us peace. He's the prince of peace. And in your study guide, I've given you three types of peace that he gives. World peace is the first one. And that's the idea that Jesus will bring peace to the earth when he comes back. So remember that, that reference to him having the government on his shoulders? That's referring to the end. And when you read the book of Revelation, it shows that Jesus w- will be the prime minister president of all the countries. He'll be in charge. I've got one verse from Revelation up there, but also a verse from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6, talks about animals, but it's really talking about nations and people that are current enemies, but when he brings peace, listen to what it says. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion will be together, and a little child will lead them. And again, another prophecy that speaks of who Christ is and what he will, what he will provide. The second kind of peace that he gives is emotional peace. And some of us walked in here today with a pit in our stomach. We walked in with anxiety and worry. I, I read this article um, by uh, research by Duke University, and um, they were studying factors that contribute to your emotional and mental stability, right? So if you want to be emotionally stable, these are some of the characteristics that you need to have. You need to be a- absent of suspicion and resentment, not living in the past, not wasting time fighting things you cannot change, Resist the temptation to withdraw from others during difficult times. Refuse to indulge in self-pity. Cultivate love and humor and compassion. And the last characteristic caught my attention. Duke University, if you want to be emotionally and mentally stable, last characteristic, you absolutely must find something bigger and greater than yourself to believe in and follow. Even secular universities are saying that when it comes to our emotional health, you have to put yourself in a position that realizes and understands there's something bigger and greater out there than you and me. I happen to believe this, this book speaks of that person and his name is Jesus. And if you wandered in here today or you visited, came with a friend, I just want to encourage you to keep taking your next step and trying to figure it out because instinctively we all know We feel it in our gut, in our soul. There's something out there that's greater than us. He brings world peace, emotional peace, and then the last one he brings and gives us spiritual peace. I know some of you maybe don't want to think of yourself this way, but my job is to speak truth to you. Spiritual peace only comes when you embrace Christ as Savior. And and I want you to notice something. Romans 5, Paul says, that until you do that, embrace Jesus as your Savior, you're literally God's enemy. And you go, well, I, I'm, not, I'm not against God. I don't hate God. I'm not fighting God. Heck, I'm in church. Y- yes, I'm here to tell you, theologically, 
until you embrace the cross of Jesus Christ and Jesus is your Savior, from God's perspective, you're his enemy. Who and what can Jesus be to you? He can be your counselor. He can be your mighty God. He can be your everlasting father. And he can be your prince of peace. But I want you to notice something about this summary slide because I choose the words very carefully. The title, we can have hope when Jesus becomes these things so that you don't get access to these qualities just because you're sitting in church. There's a story about a kid that grew up in an atheist home. His mom and dad didn't believe in God, so he didn't believe in God. And um, he went to college. He wanted to be an Olympic diver. His roommate was a Christian who also was on the diving team. And his Christian friend kept witnessing to him about Jesus and kept telling him about Jesus and kept talking about the Bible and kept telling him that it's only through the cross of Jesus Christ that you can connect with a God that really is out there. And outwardly, this, this atheist student college student, he resisted Jesus, and he resisted the teachings of Scripture. And and, and outwardly, he, 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 no to Jesus. But he didn't tell his roommate that inwardly something was stirring. Inwardly, he sensed that maybe my roommate is right. And his mind kept, he kept thinking about it, and it almost seemed like God was sending him messages, and it felt weird to him. One particular night, he went to the gym, to the swimming pool. He wanted to do a couple dives as he continued to prepare. And uh, it was past the hours when the pool was open, but he knew how to get in. And so he climbed to the highest diving board, and he was going to practice. And even though the lights were out, there were some skylights, and so the moon was shining in just enough for him to kind of prepare and do his thing. And he had a routine. Just before he would jump in, get his hands stationary and jump in, he would extend his arms and stretch out his chest and get ready and then put his arms to the side and then he would do his dive. And right as he was standing on the top of that diving board, he stretched his arms out and just because of the way that the moon was shining through those skylights, he looked on the back wall and what he saw was a cross. And he just couldn't shake it. And right there on the top of that diving board, he knelt down and he says, I, I get it, God. I get it. And he accepted Jesus as his savior. And it was after he did that, the maintenance man came in and he flipped the lights on. And it was at that point that that college diver realized that that day they had drained the water from the swimming pool and it was empty. I don't want to be melodramatic, but it's only the cross of Christ that keeps you from disaster. And I'm wondering if you're here today and you can hear him stirring in your soul and saying, I am who I said I am. Let's pray. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, why did God bring you here today?
needing to rely on him as your counselor, advisor, therapist, needing to depend on him as a mighty God that makes his power accessible to you, needing to rest in his arms as an everlasting father, needing to depend on him to bring you peace. If you lean into him, I promise you, your hope will increase. Some of you are here today, though, and you've never said yes to Jesus. You've never gone all in. You, you might have even kind of sort of believed, but you've never committed. If that's you here today, and I know there are some of us like that, I want you to pray this prayer in your heart to an almighty creator God that hears you. Dear God, I hear you. Dear God, I can feel you stirring in my heart. And today I say yes to Jesus. I, I, I don't understand all of it, but I understand enough to know that I'm a sinner and only through the grace of God and the cross of Jesus Christ can I have forgiveness for my sins. And so today, Jesus, I say yes. Be my savior, be my Lord. If you're here today without anyone else looking, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, could you just slip up your hand so I could see it? Just slip it up, throw it up real quick so I could see it. I see that hand in the front, in the back. Anyone else? I see that hand over on the side. Anyone else? Just throw it up real quick. I see that hand over on the side. Heavenly Father, for the five or six people in first service and the five or six in this service that said yes to Jesus, Father, remind them that the angels in heaven rejoice because of their commitment solidify their decision in their minds and in their hearts. Give them encouragement as they now begin this new journey of increasing their relationship with you. Father, we love you. Many of us made that decision years ago, but we walked in here not as hopeful as we needed. But today, reminded of who you are, we are energized, we are hope-filled, and we are grateful for who you are. We love you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said.